So one of the things that we say in our church often is that we want to make the, the table central and not the pulpit. Um, what that really means is that we, we want to make the experience of, of Christ himself, we want his death and his resurrection to be the central truth that we all gather around, much more so than, than maybe the things that come out of my mouth any given week, though hopefully they line up. They should line up, and it's not one at the cost of the other, but we want to always be pointing the finger back to Jesus and saying, look at him, you know, look, look at our Lord, look at the sacrifice that he paid and the goodness that comes from his life. So this is an atypical order. Normally we worship for longer, as you probably know, um, but if you are new with us, this isn't the, the normal pattern, but we're going to have our kids join us because this is a wonderful, special Sunday. But generally speaking, the kids don't like to hear me speak. <laughs> I don't take it personally. It's true. My kids are included in that. It's all right. I, I, I have a tougher skin. I can handle it. Um, but that way, you guys have to listen to me, but not all of them. But I want to talk about what we're going to be experiencing today as baptism, because it's so important for all of us to understand this. This is a, a public declaration. This is a big deal for those kids that are going to be baptized today. And we want to celebrate their lives. I believe that it's something that the community of saints as well is a part of. This isn't just a one-to-one -one thing between them and the Lord. We, as the witnesses, we bear witness to this truth. And whenever we watch somebody be baptized into the family of God, we can recall that to them. We can repeat that to them. If we watch somebody in the, in the, in the fact of their lives start to struggle, we can recall and say, I know that you belong here. We, we have a space for you here. We want to celebrate that and remember that to you. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Every time I read the Great Commission, I always want to include these, these first few verses because I think that they're so important for, for the context. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is a, a, not a rhetorical question, I mean, you don't have to answer it out loud, but I want you to really think about this. What makes you, specifically you, who you are? What makes you you? What is the defining characteristic of your life? Is it your genetics? I think that if you're looking at a biologist, that's one of the things that they're going to speak up to and say, you know, I, I have this DNA, you know, I've, I've got this whole idea. It's my, my family heritage. My parents are with us in the room. You can tell how much I might look like my dad or act like my dad. You know, skin color, hair color, eye color, you know, the things of, of our bodies that work well, maybe some parts of our body that, that don't work so well. How tall, how short, how thin, how fat. Is that who you are? Is it your body? You know, that this, this thing that they're walking around with, I, I've got the scars of an Achilles tendon surgery on, on, on my ankle that I will have for the rest of my life. Is that defining who I am? Is, is that who I am? It's permanent, but I don't think it's eternal. Though I want to point this out. The resurrected body of Christ had the marks of the nails on him. His perfected resurrected body had the marks of sacrifice on it. You could sit on that fact alone and think about what we consider perfection and, and even bodily perfection and look at, at the resurrected perfect body of Christ by that light. It's popular to say that our lives are the sum of our choices, right? Your best choices, maybe. Sometimes we define ourselves by our worst choices, 
Sometimes we judge others by their worst choices and ourselves by our best choices because it fits more naturally that way. All your choices together. There's, there's a philosophy on the, tr- on the streets that I, I've been following for a while. I don't think it has an official name yet, but the ethos of it is generally this. I can't regret anything that I've ever done because I'm here because of it. It's this idea that, that no matter what I've done, no matter if it's good or bad, it's how I got to here. So therefore, I can't regret it. And I've heard this pop up again and again and again with people that I've known, people I've tried to disciple and all this sorts of stuff. And it, it's, a, it's a sad truth that they're bringing forth here. It's fatalistic, but it's empowering. It's unapologetic. It turns the nose up at repentance and accountability. It's this idea of saying, my experiences have got to be good because that's why I'm here. So is it the sum of our choices? Is it your experiences, things that are done to you, things that you've done? Victim mentality is a very real thing. And being traumatized by experiences is a very real thing. Do those define you? Are you who you are because of those things that either you've done or things that have been done to you? Things that people label you as, which I won't get into the nasty names some of us might have heard. Is it the things that you own, things you buy, your achievements, your career, your house? I know a lot of people who have a doctor who insist on being called doctor at all points in time. I don't have the PhD, so maybe it's, it's something I can't understand. But this idea really does matter. Who are you? And, and, and like I said, I don't th- want this to be theoretical. I, I want you to really think through, whenever you think about yourself, how do you recognize yourself when you look in the mirror? What is it that, that you say, I could pick myself out of the crowd? If I, if, I were, if I were to live forever, I would always know that I am this person because of something or the other. There's this whole change in society I think we're seeing now with the online self versus the real life self. I've got a picture here of, uh, of Mark Zuckerberg. He's pushing this metaverse pretty hard. I don't know if you all follow this on media. So he posted that one on, on, the, on the left of him with the Eiffel Tower. And he was mocked pretty relentlessly for the soulless eyes and the, the lack of legs and everything like that. So he released a, a, a new improved version of himself. But we all get these, these little you know, impressions. I love whenever people, even in this room, will, will get their updated contact card. And my phone says, you know, so-and-so has a new you know, contact card. Do you want to see it? I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and it's like, how do you see yourself? You know, whenever we define ourselves with these things, whenever we create our, our avatars, whenever we recognize these things, do you recognize who you are? I, I, I was playing with my dad about whether I'd say this or not, and he told me it'd be okay. My, my dad's contact card looks a little bit like a, an, a short Asian man, which is fine, except my dad is not a short Asian man. <laughs> and it's this idea of how do you see yourself? Can we represent ourselves well digitally? Or can we not? And, and, and we're trying and, and to recreate these ideas of who we are. The, the first time that I started at, at IBM in my career in 2001, I, I went to a, what they called Becoming One Voice. That's their orientation program, if anybody knows this. And, and, and part of Becoming One Voice, they gave us your serial number. And I was 8A0049. I still remember it. I was 8A0049, we are Becoming One Voice. It's like, this is out of Star Trek. This is like the collective thing here. And I, I don't know if it's my idealism, but I just felt like there's got to be a better way. It felt soulless. It felt like my identity was intentionally kind of being lost. It was impersonal. It was dehumanizing. I thought that at 22. At 43, I still think that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't grow to appreciate this sort of thing. In the older internet days, we used IRC. You know, I don't know if everybody knew that. Like, we got Slack. I got some IRC folk. And you pick your nicknames on there. And my whole team had nicknames. And there was this guy called Thumper. 
which I don't know why he went with the rabbit from Bambi, but he did. And when you met him in, in real life, he said, I'm Thumper. And I was like, oh. <laughs> there was another guy who was called Judge. He spent some time in the military. They, they called him the, the judge, jury, and executioner. So he went with the judge. Interesting guy. And then they're like, well, what's going to be your nickname? And I felt so much pressure to pick out a nickname. And it was Josh. <laughs> and I think like if they were to track the trajectory of the team, as soon as I went with Josh, it's like everything went bland. I was like, I am so sorry. I just didn't know what to do. But we're defining ourselves. We're, we're, we're giving ourselves an opportunity to express maybe who we want to be or, or who we can be in all these things. There was a, a, a terrible but interesting uh, true crime podcast that I was listening to that talked about a 4.0 student in all AP classes, student government, um, who was murdered violently by gang-related violence. And he was targeted because of his, his online personality was so incredibly different than who he was when he went to school. And you, you thought that the podcast was going to say, well, this is who he really was, or this is who you know he pretended to be, or anything like that. The reporter got through this case, and they said, it's way more complex than that. Like, is he the person he was online? Yes. That was, he was expressing something of himself. Was he the person he was at school? Yes. It, it was somehow that these two things were, were happening at the same point in time. It's the same person, but it was a violently and, and wildly different experience of who that person was. You know I have to bring him up at some point in time. Jean Valjean. Victor Hugo, Les Mis. I, I, I jokingly said to our worship team on, on Thursday that I wanted to, to assign reading, and I was going to put a chapter on everybody's seat, so you'd have to read a chapter of, of Les Mis. They told me I couldn't do that, which made me a little sad, but I'm going to at least get you a little bit. If you don't know Les Mis, I envy you because you have a great joy in store for you. It is the best book of all time. Please don't start with the musical. Don't start with the musical. Do not, do not start with the movies. You've got to start with the book. It is a masterpiece. In, in brief, Jean Valjean is this physically intimidating, violent man. He was a criminal, and he has been arrested. He's a criminal. That's been his life. And the whole story is this idea of transformation. Can you be changed by grace? And law is forever chasing after him. It's this tension between grace and law, masterfully told over decades. There was an encounter with the priest that changed Jean Valjean's life. And the, the particular part I want us to talk about is that after he had had this transformative moment, there was this time where the old self showed back up. And so there's this little boy, little Gervais, it says. He was you know, flipping coins, as, as you can picture a kid doing. And th this 40 sous coin, which is not too much, falls on, onto the ground. And, and Victor Hugo, no, I'm sorry, Jean Valjean, puts his foot over it and just covers the coin and he steals it from this little kid. The little kid knows exactly what's happening. He calls him out on this. There's this big hoopla. Jean Valjean ends up getting arrested by this, all right? But before this whole thing happens, this is, this is the, the writing that, that comes from here. It says, uh, little Gervais, little Gervais, little Gervais. He shout, uh, his shout died away in the midst without even awakening an echo. He murmured yet once more, little Gervais, but in a feeble and almost inarticulate voice. It was his last effort. His legs gave way abruptly under him, as though an invisible power had suddenly overwhelmed him with the weight of his evil conscience. He fell exhausted on a large stone, his fists clenched in his hair and his face on his knees, and he cried, I am a wretch. Then his heart burst. He began to cry. 
was the first time that he had wept in 19 years. It was because strange phenomenon and one which was possibly only in the situation in which he found himself in stealing money from that child, he'd done a thing of which he was no longer capable. As he wept, daylight penetrated more and more clearly into his soul, an extraordinary light, a light at once ravishing and terrible, his past life, his first fault, his long expiation, his external brutishness, his internal hardness, his dismissal deliberately, rejoicing in manifold plans of vengeance that had happened to him all the bishops, the last thing he had done, that theft of 40 sous from a child, a crime all the more cowardly and all the more monstrous since it had come after the bishop's pardon. All this recurred to his mind and appeared clearly to him, but with a clearness which he had never before witnessed. He examined his life. It seemed horrible to him. His soul, it seemed frightful to him. The meantime, a gentle light rested over this life and to his soul. It seemed to him that he beheld Satan by the light of paradise. He had a change. He was reborn. And there's this wonderful thing that he actually gets a new prison number after this. And then he's in a shipwreck, baptism. He's presumed dead. He's dead. <laughs> and then he's back to life on Christmas Eve, rebirth. It's this wonderful story where we see the full picture of, of what baptism is actually meant to be. Baptism, it is repentance. It is a cleansing. It's a releasing. It's a resetting. I think that that's all pretty clear. But not, I want you to hear, in a way that gets us back to square one. Because what if who I am is born with a, a birth defect? What if who I am is, is chemically dependent? What if who I am is, is poverty-stricken? Are we just trying to get back to this earlier state of who we are? If we're trying to just wash away the years and get to some earlier version of myself, is that really what, what salvation is about? Who are we really? It's not just cleansing away the years. It's not just trying to forget about the hard times. It's not just trying to, to get past this thing. I think our idealization of youth leads us to some bad conclusions, nostalgia being one of them. If I could just be like I was before, I've thought that, right? Something happened to me, I just wish I could get over this thing. I just wish I no longer thought about that. I just wish I no longer dealt with that shame. I just wish that I could get back to who I was before then. Man, I really like Josh in his 20s. Can't, can't I be that guy again? Maybe you mean you before the trauma, before life got complicated. But here's what I want you to understand. This whole idea of experiencing life and moving forward, that's the game plan. We're not trying to get back to an earlier state. We're not trying to get back to some, some innocence that, that we once held on to. The idea is to deal with the hard stuff. The idea is to look it square in the face and to move on with rebirth. To, to fully acknowledge and address whatever it may be and to say, and here I go onward, because I will be reborn, because I will be different, because that thing doesn't define me. Whoever I am, it's going to be reborn today, and it's going to have a whole different life moving forward. That's life. It's the same thing as the Israelites in the desert, remembering the good old days, but they weren't called to go back. They weren't called to forget. In fact, they were called to remember and take that into the promised land with them. So baptism is more than cleaning. It's identity. It's dealing with the past appropriately to move on to what's next. It's joining with Christ in death and joining with Christ in his life. We're born 
and to inequitable situations. People here, we don't have the same birthrights. We don't have the same life stories. We don't have the same society, cultural context, financial background that everybody else has. It's not fair. Some of us are more privileged than others. It's not fair. For many of us, more time and more circumstances doesn't fix that. <laughs> the amazing thing is not that in this world that there's inequity. The amazing thing isn't that people are unhappy with that inequity. The amazing thing is not that we try to come up with schemes and plans trying to fix that ourselves. Of course we're going to do that. We have self-help for this. We have medication for this and that. Follow this plan to be a millionaire. You know, create generational wealth for your future. You know, we all want to improve our situation. The amazing thing isn't that that's the world that we have. The amazing thing is that Creator God made a way for us to join His family. That's the amazing thing. That he who had, that he who created everything with the word, that he who didn't need us said, I will make a way for you to leave behind that inequity and join with me in my family where you are co-heirs with Christ, where I count you as, as equal blessing as my son himself. That's the, the really unbelievable part of this story. Why, why would God lower himself and elevate us so much? That is, quite frankly, lunacy. And he did it all without losing his dignity. He did it all without losing his glory. In fact, it, it accelerated his glory. It allowed us to see it more clearly. Creator God made a way. I can't go down the road and find the biggest and nicest house and say, hello there, nice place you have. I'd, I'd like to be your son, please. <laughs> you know, I, I want to I get a part of your inheritance. It doesn't work that way. You can't choose the family that you want to get their inheritance from. Right? <laughs> I've not tried it. However, I don't believe... Okay, fair point. Maybe it would work with some people. I doubt I could go to any house, knock on their door, and say, I'd like to be your son, please. Generosity goes one way, right? You can't ask for that generosity. It has to be extended to you. Adoption goes one way. It has to be offered and extended to you. You can't conquer your way into a family. Child doesn't adopt the parents. See, the thing is, it's, it's not that, the, that by this new identity that we're lifted out of those circumstances. It's not that we're lifted out of these inequitable circumstances. It's not that, that we are now given a level playing field and that everything is now exactly as it should be. That would be great. I would love it if that were the story. That's not the case. But what we see is him coming and joining with us where we are now. The world seems stuck on this question. Can people change? And the entire word of God is this unanimous answer. Yes. <laughs> God gives new names constantly throughout scripture. God says, you were once this, but now you are this. You were, you were fathers, now I am your father. You, you didn't have a name, and, and now I'm going to give you a new one. That is what you were. This is 1 Corinthians 6. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Not what you did. Not that you did these things. It says that's what you were. That is what you were. But you're not anymore. You are not defined by your actions. You're not defined by these things that you did. You're not defined by these experiences that that you lived through. That's not who you are. If you find your identity in those things, you're missing the whole picture because you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been cleansed. God puts the fatherless into families. This is Psalm 68. Sing to God. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. So critical to hear is the celebration and the rejoicing. It's something to enjoy because it's good to be in the family of God. Could I have somebody give a word to uh, to the kids' church that, that we'll, we'll be hearing for baptisms here in a few minutes if anybody needs to change clothes? Luke, could you? Or can I? There you go. Thank you, Luke. So even without circumstances changing, a person born again in those same circumstances changes everything. I want you to hear this very clearly. I know I interrupted myself with that, but this is the culmination, all right? Without your circumstances changing, a person being born again in those same circumstances, changes everything. Let's look at Paul in jail. Acts 16. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his whole household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God he and his whole household. Circumstances were the same. They were in prison. Right? But they were different. And because the Lord has put a reborn person in these normal circumstances, everything was different. Everything had changed. That, that whenever somebody's being set free, whenever there's this amazing, miraculous display, the world is shifted because reborn people are present in those circumstances. That is going into all the world and making disciples. That's what we experience whenever we are sent into the world, not as converts, not as people that just believe something different, but as actual people who have a different life now. The Great Commission is to make disciples, not converts. 
We're not trying to go out there and make people who agree with us. We're not trying to get people to go out there and act differently. Our identity is different. We have been reborn. So for the people getting baptized here today, yes, this is repentance. Yes, this is obedience to the, the, the example set by Jesus. Yes, it's a public declaration. But I hear them saying something else. What I hear them saying is, my story is bigger than it was before. What they're saying is, I am not defined by whatever family I was born into. I am not defined by whatever I have done before this. I am defined by who my Father in heaven is. I am defined because I've been born again. I am defined by the grace that has changed my life. And that is how I want to be known. That's what baptism is celebrating. We are different. We have changed. And this world will be shaped. This world will be changed because we go forth into it. Amen? Amen.